The Fab Four may be one of the many nicknames that fans call the Beatles, but in reality the band had a number of different members before the final famous lineup. Chaz Newby, our guest this week, was a Beatle for two weeks. He played just four gigs with the band in December 1960, two at the Caspar Club, one at the Grosvenor Ballroom in Wallasey, and the Beatles' famous first appearance at Litherland Town Hall. It's a fortnight he will never forget. I'm Laura Davis. And I'm Ellen Kerwin. And this is Beatles City. Chaz actually on Matthew Street didn't you right in the heart of, of Beetleland? yeah so we, we took a walk down Matthew Street and we saw the new Silla statue and we saw John Lennon statue and then we sat outside the rubber saw complex and had a Guinness and had a right chin wag and for him I mean obviously it sounds like a really exciting two weeks in his life but then that was it in terms of his story with the Beatles so does he see that as a really exciting time a really good opportunity or does he have a lot of regrets? No not at all he's got no regrets he has led quite a normal life in comparison to obviously other Beatles members now but he just at the time he didn't really see it as a career he saw it as a hobby that he loved to do he said back in the day you know everyone will pick up a guitar at a party or when they were out in the club. So he just saw it as something he really enjoyed doing and he saw it as a great opportunity that he looks back on fondly, but he's got no regrets whatsoever. So we are here on Matthew Street with Chaz Newby, who's got great stories to tell us. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up playing with the Beatles in 1960? The only reason people know who I am is down to Pete Best. Because I was at school with Peter and I played rugby with him. And when he opened, his mum opened that club, the Casbar Club, underneath their house then we were all there on the first night so I've known Peter since I was 11 uh, 1960 um, Peter joined John Paul and George and Stuart and they went off to Hamburg for the first time and then it just so happened whilst they were away in Hamburg I was away uh, working in, um, in Essex in Harlow Essex and uh, but we kept in touch, you know, and I kept in touch with the guys here. And then I came back to start <clears throat> my second year of college, and Peter's still over there. So we went down to the Casbah, what's going on? Oh, they're due back uh, middle of December. Right, OK. And sure enough, they turned up without Stuart, because Stuart stayed behind, spent the Christmas with Astrid and her family. And so they get back to Liverpool and they need to get some gigs, make some money and they also need to find a bass player. And Peter said, I mean, I knew them anyway, but he said, well, he'll do it. That's exactly how it happened. And that's how it happened. So you were there on the very opening day when the Caspar first opened and when the Quarrymen played, they, they opened it. What was it like being there for such a pivotal time? Bear in mind, we didn't realise it was pivotal. We thought it was normal. I thought everybody played guitars and collected music and records and whatever, you know. Uh, but it was important, no doubt about it, because it allowed young people uh, to go to a place there was no beer, for instance, it was Coke. It was the record Coke cellar in the Northwest apartment. Um, 
but it was a safe place to go. And of course, the important thing for 16 and 17 year old boys was that there were 16 and 17 year old girls there as well. <laughs> of course. So it was a social imperative, really. And, uh, and Peter just insisted that we were all there on the first night. And when we walked in, there's John Paul George and Kenny Brown. And they're the, they're the band that opened it. Yeah. So I knew them from then. That was August 59. And, uh, and then when they came back from Germany, they knew who I was. And they knew that I knew the songs that they played, you know, then. The covers, the American rock and roll covers. So it, they borrowed a bass guitar and a leather jacket and off I went. <laughs> and what was it like to, to play with them? Oh, it's mind-blowing. Peter was used to it, you see, because, you know, he'd been from the time they'd started in Hamburg all the way through that four months, you know, through to December. Uh, that's their... 10,000 hours of learning, isn't it? You know, they're, they're so tight and so together. And, uh, and it sounded so professional. That, that, that was my impression straight away, that they sounded like a professional band. Uh, and they played all the music that I like playing. You know, the Chuck Berry and Ray Charles and Carl Perkins and all that stuff. And as you said, you know, they were so they were so tight and they were so, you know, professional. So what was it hard to sort of slot in there and, and pick up with the rest of the band or how, how did that feel? They just told me what keys we were playing in, you know, just play the piano, you know, the boogie left hand, you know. Just it was easy, really. The the most difficult bit was I borrowed a bass from a guy called Tommy McGurk, and he used to play with uh, the Django Beats at the Casbah, later became Earl Preston and the TTs and whatever. Uh, but of course, Tommy was right handed. So I got this bass guitar, and uh, so I sort of, uh, it's not as difficult as it sounds, but I just played it upside down. You had to down. play it upside down? <laughs> that sounds really difficult. But it isn't, you know, there's less balls. So all the notes are there, you just, you've just got to play up rather than playing down. You know? And it was, I enjoyed it, it was brilliant. Have you got a favourite moment from those like two sort of weeks that you did play with them? What, what, what is that? The end, the beginning and the end of the Liverland Town Hall. I was just, I was staggered. And Chap, who used to be the DJ in the cavern, he's the guy who got them the job. Yeah. And I'll remember his name in a moment. So he's standing in, and it's a proper dance hall. It's not like the Casbah, which was a members club. Yeah. This is a proper dance hall, sprung floor, stage, curtains. And we're standing behind, right? John's over there, George is there, Paul's in the middle. Pete and I are at the back, the fat guys at the back. And uh, Bob Wooler, that's it. Bob Wooler's on the microphone. And it was a surprise gig, you see. Yeah. It wasn't... Uh, it was an afterthought. And so the Beatles actually played during the interval when it should have been records. You know? And Bob Wooler's on the mic. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have a special appearance direct from Hamburg. The fabulous... 
and he's about to say Beatles and Paul nudged him out the way and screamed into Long Tall Sally. Well, the dancing stuff. What the hell? Because people didn't go to listen to the band. They went to dance. The band only provided the music. So all of a sudden they're assaulting. Instead of having these uh, neatly attired uh, suits and ties, white shirts and shiny shoes, and mincing about, the, doing little steps all over the stage. And we've got these five guys dressed in black leather and cowboy boots, jumping all over the place and screaming into the microphone. So it, it was rather different to what they expected. But in a way that turned out to their advantage because people just gravitated to the stage. They just wanted to see what the hell was going on. And, and then Paul would sing a few slow ones, you know, like the, the Elvis number, Wooden Heart. And he'd be, uh, the bit where he starts to sing in German. And of course, his big doe eyes and all these girls gathered around, you know. <laughs> it's brilliant. But the crunch, the, 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 the thing that cracked it was right at the end. I mean, bear in mind, they're only on there for 25, 30 minutes. It's an interval. And the last song, as far as I'm aware, it was the, they always used to close shows with it whilst they were here and in Hamburg, you know, before they went uh, to London. It was a Ray Charles song, you know, What Did I Say, with the shouting and the response in the middle of it. Well, they get to that, see, and Paul shouted, yeah! And, the old, and there's four or five hundred people now standing still watching the band, you know, shouting back. And the guy who ran the gig, a fellow called Brian Kelly, he thought trouble had broken out. You know, there was so much noise. So he sent, he sent all the, the heavy mob in, you know, the, the overcoats and no hair, you know. <laughs> and of course, they charged, expected to be separated. It was just people enjoying themselves. And as soon as he realized what had happened, he dragged them off the stage, took them straight up to his office. And they booked all these gigs. I, I don't know how precisely, but there were 30, 35 gigs he booked them for before, between January, uh, yeah, January and April. So they obviously impressed him as well. <laughs> so what, what did happen, so after you, you played with the Beatles, then, then what happens for you and what happens after you played with them? I had no idea to be, you know, no ambition to be a professional muso. I, I, I was studying chemistry and chemical engineering. Yeah, it sounds up your own ass, but you know, oh, sorry. But, but you know what I'm saying. It, it, that was my ambition, study sciences. And, and that's what I was doing. And so on the 4th of January, I went back to college. And John Paul, George, and Pete Best, Stuart came back home. And of course, because of the rumpus that had been made at Liverland Town Hall, then there was pressure to get them to play here. Uh, which I think, I don't know, I'm only quoting the books, I think, but it was sort of the April time of 61, so it's another 
three or four months after I've played them. And I was back at college. I was quite happy. I just, I, when we were back, the, we're, we're chatting amongst ourselves, you know, the, these, what these guys had done over the Christmas holiday and the, the vacation, you know. And uh, I remember one had been up to Scotland to stay with his grandparents, and one who was a bit of a stuffy wallet, he'd been skiing in Switzerland. And they said to me, well, what did you do? And I said, I played bass guitar with a rock and roll band. <laughs> <laughs> so, but eventually, so yes, I just pursued that. I finished up with a master's degree in chemical engineering. Then the company I worked with, they sent me down to work for a company in Birmingham, which is why Eddie and I live in. Well, that's why I moved down to Ulster. Eddie worked in Birmingham as well some time ago. So is it right that John actually asked you to come back on tour and play a, f- a few more gigs with the band? Uh, that's what I sort of remembered. Yeah. But having the benefit of hindsight um, and having read all the literature surrounding these guys at that early stage, I can't for the life of me imagine that John Lennon was going to ditch his best mate. I mean, John and Paul used to fight about Stuart, you know. So I don't think John was, and I think what John wanted was for me and a couple of other guys, Billy Barlow, the people who used to play with Pete Best, Kenny Brown, to get out to Germany, because they, I think that he was trying to act as some sort of ambassador, you know, for get the British, the Liverpool groups out there. Yeah, well, in hindsight, you do hear a lot of that. You do hear, you know, John being a bit of a mastermind and, you know, trying to tail the way almost for Liverpool bands. So do you think that's maybe what he was trying to do with you? I'm sure it was, yeah. I I can't for the life of me imagine that he wanted me to replace Stuart. That's just against everything that we know about. I mean, bear in mind, at this point, well, I never met Stuart. I I never actually got to shake hands with him or say hello or whatever. So I I had no idea what the relationship was between John and Stuart. It was only much later that I read about Stuart virtually teaching John how to paint and draw and whatever, and uh, John teaching Stuart how to play the bass. So it it was really quite later in life in 2016 when you picked up with the Quarrymen, is that right? So how did that come about? Can I say it? No. <laughs> it was just the first time. Yeah. The, uh, I play in a band in Ulster, where I live, uh, and, and it's just yeah, old age pensioners playing 50s music. You know. And uh, we had a website, right? And somebody in the United States got onto or emailed or contacted the website and said, is this Chas Newby who plays in your bracket band is he the same one that, you know? so the answer was obviously yes so we got to know this guy uh, in Madison, Wisconsin right? Jim Birkenstadt his name is. and I've been communicating with him ever since so from about 2005 and, whatever. and gradually I got to know what, what he did he was a Chicago lawyer Sorry, he graduated, but he studied law uh, at Chicago. And whilst he was there, he start, He noticed the, the beat. This is 1971, 72. The Beatles are not making records now, obviously. 
uh, Dylan isn't either. So, so his two favourite recording artists are not producing anything. So he decided to start looking at these bootleg copies of Beatles material. And he then, once he's assembled all, bear in mind this guy's a lawyer, right, so he knows how to you know, assemble information and order it and construct it and whatever. And so he writes a book about the bootleg copies of Beatles material. And this would be, oh, the mid-90s, so. There were 13 original Beatle albums. And he found, in nine, the mid-90s, he found 1,600 bootleg copies, you know, from, you know, Eastern Europe, Asia, whatever. So he started a company called the Rock and Roll Detector. And then the next thing I heard was he was, he was writing a story about a drummer from, from London called Jimmy Nichol. And Jimmy Nichol was the guy in 64 when Ringo was taken ill and rushed into hospital. Jimmy Nichol jumped on the plane. Right? He went to Amsterdam, Copenhagen, then he went to Hong Kong and then to Adelaide in Australia. And then Ringo, this all happened over a two week period. And by this time Ringo's recovered, so he jumps on a plane and Jimmy Nichol comes back to England. And Jimmy Nichol was, he was an accomplished drummer. I mean, he was a session guy, he'd worked for Boozy Hawks, he knew what he was doing. And he was the same size as Ringo, so he fitted in. Fitted in all the clothes. <laughs> so he's, he has a ball, you know. And he's on the plane on his own coming back thinking, I must be able to use, you know, I've played drums with the best band in the world. But there must be something I can do to use that experience to my advantage. Wrong. Unfortunately, everything he did just turned to dust. And Jim wrote, <coughs> Jim wrote a book about, you know, whatever happens to Jimmy Nichol. Uh, the Beatles Who Vanished, it was called. And he said Jimmy Nichol was in the Beatles for two weeks and he played four gigs. He says, does that remind you of anybody? All right. He said, there's a certain synergy, right? So I wrote the foreword to the book. Then the next thing, of course, the book is published in the United States. Who's this guy? Never heard of him. So I got invited to a couple of... Uh, Beatles festivals in, and Jim and I would just had a stall, you know, sell the books, 15 books, thank you very much. Oh, of course I'll autograph it, you know. <laughs> it was silly, really. But the guy who was the MC for the show, a couple of years earlier, the Quarrymen had done a tour in the United States, and this guy had organised the tour for them, so, and he said to me, do you know the, the quarrymen? I said, well, I know who they are. Part of the history. Yeah. Just by pure coincidence, I come back, what was it, August something, August bank holiday, in the Casbah with Pete, the rogue, and who's on the stage? The quarrymen. So it's just coincidence. Really. So I got talking to Rod and... Yeah. And eventually I, I got to play bass with him. So, so it, 
it's a big circle that's just joined up, you know. Yeah, it started in the Casbah and then it started back up again in the Casbah, yeah. Just amazing. And the odd thing is, the first time I saw the quarry, man, none of the present guys, none of the original guys were in it. They'd all been replaced with the exception of John. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. But it is. Yeah. And now, of course, uh, when we do gigs, when we're in England anyway, uh, we all sort of give a little story, and we introduce the songs and give a little story. Last week, last weekend, we were in Hungary. And the guy who was organising the gear, the trip said, we don't do the individual chat. He said, we'll put you all on the stage at the front to start with. And then he could do the translations one after the other. And then we could just get on with playing the music. So that's what we do. But normally it's more casual. Yes. So we're sitting here on Matthew Street now. You're, you've got your pints of Guinness. How has the street changed from when you were back on it? Well, there were All no those lights. years ago. There were no lights. There was certainly no Scylla statue either. <laughs> no. But there were no lights or you know, flags or Scylla. Or, and the cavern was this way, the other way. The cavern was the other way. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, this place was here. Yeah, this was here. The grapes were there, yeah. So we were sitting outside having a pint now. And have you ever played in any of these venues? Yes, yes. The uh, 1957, uh, before 19, 2016, uh, you know, the last time I've been here, it was just a dark street. You know, there's, there's no, what's the name? I know the guy who did it all. Uh, the architect who created Cavern Walks. Right, uh, yeah. But it, it certainly wasn't like this. And there was no uh, uh, references to, obviously, to the music that the Beatles created, you know, Rubber Soul. And there's one down there called The Hard... Oh, there's a hotel, isn't it? The Hard Day's Nice. Well, just next door to us, in between the grapes and the Rubber Soul, there's the Magical Mystery Museum, of course, yeah, yeah. which is a lot to do with Pete, who you're very close with. What is your relationship like with Pete? Oh, it's fine. I mean, you know... If I wasn't sitting here, I'd be talking to him somewhere, you know. But we, since, I mean, I left Liverpool in uh, 68. And of all the people I knew then, all my, shall we say, the closest social friends, uh, none of them live in Liverpool, apart from Peter. So he's the only one left. So we make a point of going, you know, every August bank holiday. And... uh, and on a few occasions I've sung and played with the band and on others I've just gone as a punter, you know, just yeah. sit in the garden and chat to people. So you like you like to come back, don't you? I am in August for the for the Beatles week um, every year. What will you be doing this year? I don't think there's anything organised for us. We've done some wild things, you know, like uh, in 2016 it was the... 60th anniversary of the cavern, so we we played the you know that night with Chas McDevitt and uh, Gilbert O'Sullivan, uh, and then we did the reenactment of the day that Paul met John at Walton. So uh, and these are, these all occurred one after the other. Yeah, because obviously they're all coming around now, aren't the anniversaries are all yeah. coming around. So uh, and then we had a question and answer session in the uh, Adelphi with uh, Whispering Bob Harris. And then last year it was a similar sort of thing, but with uh, Spencer, Spencer Lee. So. 
No, it's good fun. And, I mean, strange things happen. Because Ed and I, last year, we decided we weren't going to do anything. We'd just come and enjoy it, just be punters. And we stayed at the Crown Plaza on the front. And we'd just finished breakfast on the Saturday, and we were coming out. And there were these two blonde guys, tall, with, with the dressing gowns on and slippers. And they'd obviously been to the pool or the sauna or whatever. You know. And we just happened to get into the lift together. And this guy sort of pointed, said, oh, hello, he says, you're, you're Chas Newby, aren't you? Well, Ed died. Yeah, I mean, yeah. who the hell's the... But, of course, he'd seen as a Casbah, you know. But it is, it's uh, very funny. And, I, I, you know, I've been to this place next door, you know, the Magical History Museum, and uh, a couple of times, you know, I've met people in it, or Rogue has introduced me to people, you know. Yeah. So it is, it's good fun. Well, yeah, well, listen, thanks so much for talking to me, but it's getting a little bit rowdy around here now. Oh. Yeah, and a little bit cold. People are coming to enjoy the pints after work. So I'll let you finish your pints as well. Thank you very much for meeting up with me, and especially since you're not down in Liverpool often. It's been great to speak to you. It's been nice to speak to you, yeah. Thank, Thank you, you, Chaz. Thanks, Chaz.